It was the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 100 years ago today, 1918, that the war to end all wars came to an end. The armistice was signed 100 years ago today. The Europeans, if you know, remember your history, not that any of you were living back then, but um, the Europeans had been fighting since 1914, um, basically to a stalemate. And then it was in 1917, uh, the late spring, early summer of, uh, of 1917, that the American troops started landing in Europe. Uh, and that's when everything completely changed. Uh, within 17 months, the war had come to an end. Within 17 months, by that war's end, there were two point, roughly 2.8 million Americans in Europe fighting. I had three great uncles that fought in that great war. Uh, Lisa's uh, grandfather fought in that great war. And there's no question that without that American involvement, that that war would have uh, continued uh, in that stalemate, maybe for years. The German army on the opposite side also acknowledged that when the Americans entered the conflict, that's when things begin to change. In fact, there's some interesting, fascinating um, interviews that were done officially uh, uh, by the uh, German army and their um, understanding of uh, the end of that war. One German officer Put it this way, he said, I fought in campaigns against the Russian army, the Serbian army, the Romanian army, the British army, the French army, and the American army. And all told, in this war, I've participated in over 80 battles. But I have found it's the American army, the most honorable of all our enemies. They have also been the bravest of our enemies. And in fact, they're the only ones who have attacked us seriously in this year's battles. Another officer, German officer, said, the French would not advance unless they were sure of gaining their objectives, while the American infantry would dash in regardless of all the obstacles, and that, while they gained their objectives, they would often do so with heavy loss of life. In these actual interviews of German soldiers, one wrote, Americans are good fighters with nerve and utter recklessness. The American infantryman was reckless to the point of foolishness. Another wrote, the Americans have the reputation of irresistible courage. And another one interviewed said, the Americans were always advancing and acting more like wild men than soldiers. There has been, I think, throughout American history, this kind of, uh, this kind of can-do spirit this sense of rugged individualism. If you happen to see the, the last spring, there was a PBS special on uh, the Great War, World War I, and that was one of the themes that came over and over again. The American soldiers acted like wild men. This rugged individualism, this we won't take no for an answer. Lisa's grandfather kept a diary of his days in World War I, and we were reading through that diary uh, not long ago, and on one particular entry in September of 1918, 100 years ago, were written simply three words, 
over the top. Because that was the day he and his fellow soldiers left their muddy trenches and went over the top into no man's land and onto victory. And while my three great uncles were fighting in France, their younger brother, my grandfather, was homesteading on the prairies of Wyoming, trying to keep four young children fed and a young wife happy. The can-do spirit, the we will never say no, we will never back down. Don't tell an American they can't do something. And yet, the fact of the matter is, in life, we all come to situations when we go over the top into a no-man's land, and in spite of the, the grit and the determination, in spite of the, the rugged individualism, we can oftentimes find ourselves in situations where there literally is no place to go, overcome by the daunting challenges of life. And then, when those times come, what do we do? In our study of the book of Isaiah, God's chosen people, the people of Israel, have found themselves in such no man's land. They have found themselves in situation of life where there's no place to turn. There's no place to go. The hopelessness of experiencing some of the darkest times of their existence. And it was in those times that they heard from the prophet of God, Isaiah. Isaiah would say things like in chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, Comfort, O comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak kindly to, is to Jerusalem and, and call out to her and say that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And it was these words of comfort, comfort, of, of hope, of, of a message from God that says, I am with you. I will strengthen you. I have a sovereign plan that I am unfolding. It was those words of comfort and hope that dominate the last half of Isaiah's book chapter 40 through 66. And as we move into that section of Isaiah's major prophetic work, I think we'll see that theme arise over and over again. Comfort and hope because a sovereign God is moving his plans forward unhindered. Well, I want you to take your Bibles today and turn with me to chapter 41. Because that's the chapter we're in today, Isaiah chapter 41. And God has a message for three different groups of people. He's got a message for uh, the Gentile nations in verses 1 through 7. And then verses 8 through 20, he's got a message uh, for his own chosen people of Israel. And then interestingly, at the end of this chapter, verses 21 through 29, he's got a final message that's geared towards the false gods of all the peoples. Chapter 1, verse 1, or chapter 41, verse 1, he says, Coastlands, listen to me in silence and 
coastlands would be another name for Gentile nations that are surrounding my people. Gentile nations, the coastlands, listen, be quiet, listen to me, I have a message for you. Let the peoples gain new strength. Now that's an interesting little phrase because at the end of chapter 40, that's what he told his own people of Israel. They that trust me, those that wait upon me will gain new strength if you trust me. And it's like God is coming to the Gentile nations here, and he's saying, coastlands, now listen, be quiet. Don't say a word, just listen. And you'll gain new strength if you believe what I'm going to say. And he asks a couple of, of questions in these following verses. Look at verse 2. Or he says, last part of verse 1, let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Now here's question 1, verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and seduces kings. He makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. Verse 3, he pursues them, passing on in safety by a way that had not been traversing with his feet. Here's the second question, verse 4. Who has performed and accomplished this? And he's asking these questions of the Gentile nations. Who has done this? What? Aroused one from the east, verse 2. Made him successful, calling him in righteousness to his feet, delivering up nations before him. This one who's coming from the east this one who has been aroused. Now, uh, we'll, we'll see this a little bit later, but this one that he is talking about here, this one who's aroused from the east, was a, a great ruler of Persia, and his name was Cyrus, his, history tells us. And it takes place about 150 years after Isaiah is actually writing these words. But it's as if Isaiah is looking down in the future, and he's, he's playing this, this video, this scene of, of this powerful one from the east who has been aroused, who has stood to his feet, who is going places that his feet has never traversed, and he's incredibly successful. Nations are delivered before him. Kings are subdued. He makes them like dust with his sword, as wind-driven chaff with his bow. And he pursues them, passing on into safety. And again, the question is, who, is, who has aroused this one? Who has planned this? Who has made this possible? Who is this that causes this, this Cyrus from the east? And the answer, last part of verse 4, I, Jehovah, I am the first and with the last, I am he who has performed this, who has accomplished this, who has called forth the generations from the beginning. Who is sovereign over all the world affairs? This is the question God is asking. Who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Who has the nations in the palm of his hands? 
Who sovereignly calls the great emperor from the east? Who makes him successful as he dashes through the nations? I, Jehovah, the Lord, I am he. I do it. It's a powerful statement of God's sovereign control over the affairs of mankind. Now, do the nations who've been called to to listen in silence, do they embrace it? Embrace it, he said in verse 1, and you'll gain new strength. Did they? Keep reading in verse 5. The coastlands these Gentile nations have seen and are afraid. There's no new strength gained. They are uh, afraid. The ends of the earth, they tremble. And they've drawn near and have come. And verse 6, each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, now be strong. And so the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he smooths metal with the hammer and encourages him who beats with the, at, at the anvil. And he says of the soldering, it is good, and he fastens it with nails so it will not totter. In other words, what do the nations do? Do they turn to the one who's the all-powerful sovereign of the world, of the universe, and gain new strength? No. They come together and they say, hey, Let's encourage one another. Be strengthened now. Let's, we'll, we'll stand against this force. And let's, let's build our gods. And let's nail them down tightly and make them sturdy so they don't fall over. Let's trust in our gods and in our deities. It's almost humorous as Isaiah's writing this as he looks at the the nations and he sees them fastening their deities so they don't topple over in the face of the one who has said, I am he, the Lord, the sovereign of all history. And then God turns to his own people in verse 8. Such a stark contrast. But you... Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. And it's as if Isaiah is is helping them to remember the words back in Genesis chapter 12, when God told Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to make a great nation. And when others curse you, I will curse them. When they bless you, I will bless them. And you will be a blessing to all the world. Maybe Isaiah, as he's writing these words in chapter 41, he was thinking of, of what God said in Deuteronomy. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers... But you, Israel, you're my servant. 
You're, you're the one I have chosen. You're the descendants of my friend, Abraham. I love you. I care for you. Verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you. I've not rejected you. Now, verse 10, do not fear, for I'm with you. Don't anxiously look about you. I'm your God, and I'll strengthen you. Surely I'll help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then God assures them that their enemies will never prevail. Verse 11, behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and, and dishonored, and those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. And you will seek those who quarrel with you, but you won't find them. And those who war with you will be as nothing. They'll be non-existent. Verse 13, for I am Jehovah. I'm Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Verse 14, do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the, the Holy One of Israel. I, I, I love that kind of ex, that, uh, description. I'm going to help you. Don't fear, you worm, <laughs> oh, Jacob. You worm. It, it's such a contrast with the Holy One of Israel. I think God has simply reminded His chosen people of their helplessness of their insignificance, of their powerlessness. You're a worm. I hesitate to even share this, but my wife Lisa was taking our little grandson, Haddon, he's two years old, out for a walk the other day. And it is the season of the woolly worms, is it not? You see them all over. And Lisa, who in a, maybe another life could have been the president of PETA. I don't know. I don't want to put that on her, but she's taking little Haddon, and she's putting, looking at him, and she's, she's taking that little woolly worm that's on the sidewalk, and she's taking her finger, and she's stroking the little woolly worm. Oh, look, Haddon. Look at the little worm. And Haddon, the little two-year-old Haddon, the little small two-year-old Haddon, raises his foot and to the horror, like in slow motion, <laughs> that, by the way, is the Avery side. <laughs> That's the in-laws. You take a little worm, and God is saying, you're, you're, you're like a little worm that a two-year-old could step on. You're powerless. You're helpless. You're insignificant. But don't fear. For the Holy One of Israel comes to your aid. I will help you. Verse 15, behold, I have made you a new sh sharp threshing uh, sledge with double edges, and you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. Again, what a contrast. You little worm. I'm going to make you so that you can pulverize mountains 
You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and, and make the hills like chaff. Verse 16, you will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them and you will rejoice in the Lord and you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Verse 17, the afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. Their tongue is parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As a God of Israel, I will not forsake them. Verse 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness and the, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. And I'm going to place the juniper in the desert and together with the box tree and the cypress so that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord Jehovah has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. And that's the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. A word that is used only for divine, powerful activity. You're the worm... I'm the creator. You're insignificant. I'm the Holy One of Israel. You are like a parched people, thirsty with no water. I will cause the springs to come up. You are like a desert wilderness. I will bring life from the trees to a barren soul. Trust me. I'll help you so that all will see and glorify me. Words of encouragement to his people. But then in the, the final paragraph, he, he turns and he, he, he starts talking to the people who have been making these little wooden or metal gods, nailing them down so they don't totter over. Verse 21 Present your case, the Lord says. It's almost like in a court of law. All right, pre present your case. I've just talked to you about who I am. Now present your case. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And as for the former events, declare what they were that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. God challenges the false gods. He tells the creators of these false gods, um, bring them forth and, and let's test them. Have them tell us what once was so that we we can understand what will be. Have them tell us what is coming. Let them interpret for us history. Let them explain to us the events of the past, how it brings us to the present, and how the things that are about to come all fit, that we can gain understanding. Let them speak to us, to announce to us, verse 23. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are God's, Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and, and fear together. In other words, he's saying, do something, whether it's good, whether it's evil. Don't just 
sit there in silence, I'm giving you a, a great opportunity. Tell us what has happened. Tell us what is going to happen. Announce these things. We got, we're all ears. Say something. It reminds me of, I wonder if you, Isaiah is even thinking of that as he's writing this, of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Where is your God? Where are your gods? In verse 24, the conclusion after the silence, behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I, verse 21, have aroused one from the north. This one who has come from the east, Cyrus, who's come over the, the fertile crescent who's going to be coming down. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Verse 26, who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Or from former times that we might say, he's right. Surely there, has, surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed it. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Verse 27, formerly I said to Zion, Behold, look, here you are. They are. And to Jerusalem I said, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, I've offered you and your gods this opportunity. When I look, there is no one. There, there is no counselor among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? Verse 29, behold, look, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are are wind, worthlessness, emptiness. Again, almost humorous in this sarcastic language, this challenge goes forth to all these nations. Give me your best shot, and there's silence. Because it's emptiness, it's mere wind nothingness. And God, the Holy One of Israel, stands alone. Now, the wonderful thing about this chapter is that it tells us, I think, so many, so many wonderful things about God, about who God is. Let me share just a couple things. I think, first of all, Isaiah is telling us that God, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the one and only Lord of history. He's the one and only God of the past, God of the present, and God of the future. He is the God of history. And a century and a half before it even happened, he's arousing. He says, I'm arousing one from the east. And he's, he's foretelling of the coming of a great ruler. Now, he's going to be named later in Isaiah chapter 44, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. 150 years later, those words were said. God was predicting, even naming Cyrus earlier in chapter 39. 
Verse 6, he had said, Behold, days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried off away into Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And here, God is predicting that Babylonian captivity. Long before Babylon was even on the world scene as a world-dominating power, it was Assyria that was the dominating power. And yet God predicts, just like he did earlier in a passage where he talked about the Assyrian kings were going to come. God is the one who's speaking forth the future. Just like he has spoken forth, he says, from all generations. If you go back to verse 4, who has performed this and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? It is I, Jehovah, the first, and I'll be with the last. And it's not that God just predicts these events or that he just looks ahead and knows that these events are happening because he's omniscient. God ordains these events. He speaks them into existence. Go back to verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east when he calls in the right, uh, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? It was God who aroused Cyrus. 150 years later, after Isaiah's writing this, it's God, Jehovah, who, who brings him to his feet, who goes before him to be successful in his conquering so that he can eventually come and, as history tells us, conquer Babylon, where the chosen people of Israel had been enslaved for 70 years. And he, he conquers Babylon and he frees the slaves so that they can go back to their homeland. God ordained all that. He just doesn't predict it. He plans it, and he works it out. God gives this Cyrus, this ruler, safe passage and makes him successful. God calls forth the generations from the beginning. Why? Because he is the Lord, the first and the last. Empires rise and fall because he ordains it which is nice to hear the Sunday after an election. Now, I was a history major in my undergraduate days. And in seminary, I took a couple of years even of church history classes. And this is just kind of an aside, but it just kind of grieves me to see that our kids, and maybe it's been for years, they're not learning history. They're not learning history. It's, it's being revised. It's, it's being um, whole blocks of historical data aren't even being taught in our schools today. And then so much of history doesn't even, what is taught doesn't even show the God part of it all. You can't understand history without theology. That God is the great mover, the shaker of all history. And I, I think it's difficult as parents at home to, to teach your kids proper history and the Godward perspective. I'm sure there's great resources out there. It makes me think we as a local church, church leadership, we need to incorporate more of that 
into our training of our kids. You can't understand the, the, the movement of God in history without telling them the theology of who God is. He raises them up. He brings them down. He's the mover and shaker of all of history. He's Jehovah Yahweh God. And we don't even acknowledge it today. What a shame. And so our children grow up with a, a small view of God oftentimes. He's the first. He's the last. He's the sovereign Lord that is fulfilling his plans for the ages and bringing them to their consummated end. Which, by the way, raises questions, I'm sure, in your mind, or should, about where does human freedom come in in all this? And, oh my, look at that, the time's getting away, so we can't really talk a whole lot about that, but... <laughs> so God arouses Cyrus from the east, the Persian leader. Well, I mean, did Cyrus just wake up one day and all of a sudden get moved and start heading westward, you know, to do a conquering? Like, what, what's happening to me today? Where does human freedom fit into all this? I, I think it should be clear from this passage, another passage, that God is actively moving in human history. He did raise up Cyrus. But Cyrus also exercised his human freedom. God ordained that Cyrus be raised up to accomplish his purposes. But somehow, in some way, the Bible also teaches that Cyrus exercised his freedom and moved forward. Theologians, of course, have debated this over the centuries, but the Scriptures teach us both because there's a ditch on either side that we can fall into. But enough about that. Second of all, this passage, I think, teaches us that this, this Jehovah God of, of all of history, the sovereign Lord of all, is also a God of grace and compassion, and he takes care of his children. Active compassion. Verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my chosen, the descendant of Abraham, my friend, and some of our translations will say, Abraham, my beloved. And there is this sense of this endearing heart of God that he looks down at his little woolly worms and he loves them. I've taken you from the ends of the earth, verse 9. I've made you my servant. I've chosen you. I've not rejected you. So, so don't fear, verse 10, because I'm with you. Don't anxiously look about. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I'm going to uphold you with my powerful right hand. Verse 14, I'm your redeemer, your redeemer. What a powerful term. It was used in the Old Testament of, of that one who would look at a relative who could not pay their debts, who lived in poverty, who would be absolutely destitute and then the near kinsman would, would stand up and arise and, and pay off the debts and redeem I'm your redeemer God says 
I've paid your debts. The fullness of that concept we'll see in a few chapters, in chapter 53. And these are words that God speaks to his children today. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, these words are as applicable to us as they were 2,800 years ago. I've chosen you. I'm not rejected you. I'll help you. I will take hold of you. I will strengthen you. I mean, you look at passages in the New Testament, like Hebrews 13. He himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What, what will man do to me? Or in chapter 4 of Hebrews, therefore let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As his children, this is what we can do. Or, or Romans chapter 8, was one of my favorite passages. Who, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, did not spare, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who's justified. Who is he? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, and yes, rather was raised, and is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And so the question for each of us, when we're called to, to go over the top into that no man's land, into that hopeless situation that we're facing, that single mom who's wondering, how can I make ends meet to raise these kids? That widower who's, who's lost the love of his life after 50, 60 years, enters that no man's land. That family of five that dad just lost his job or mom just lost her job, and they're wondering how ends are going to be made. That single person who's in that no man's land wondering, Will I continue in singleness? God, do you have something for me? Do you want me to do something in my singleness? Or do you want me to have a spouse? Lord, I, I want to hear from you. And no matter what the situation is, but in our life, multiple times, the whistle blow, and we're called to go over the top into the no man's land of hopelessness. And sometimes that's an everyday thing, and we have to make a choice. We have to... We have to hear the call of God. The question is being put to us. Who are you going to trust? Uh, yourself? Your own abilities to figure this out? It's, God is saying it's nothing more than tack, taking a, a piece of metal, a rough-hewn stone, and nailing it down so it won't totter over a God of our own making, or every day we get up and we have to make a choice. Is it the God of all of history? The sovereign of all of time who says, look, I'm here. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will carry you. I love you. I call you my friends. I call you my children. Who you go to trust in no man's land? 
And it begins the moment we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says you can never be good enough to make it to heaven. You can do all your good works, have all your wonderful church attendance, you can give your money to feed the poor, you can sacrifice your very life, but it'll never earn you a spot in my heaven. But the good news is, God says, I love you, and I gave my son to pay for your sins. And he died in your place, and he rose again victorious. He did it all. Now will you trust him? He's your eternal help. He's your eternal strength. He's your eternal redeemer. Is there anyone here this morning who still thinks that to get to heaven, it's based on what you're doing? I'm going to invite you to give it up. And I'm going to invite you to do what God has invited us to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him because he alone can save you from your sins and bring you to glory. And that's where it starts. And some of us have been walking with Jesus now for 50, 60 years, or 10 or 12. And he still calls to us, will you trust me? Because those that wait upon the Lord, they gain new strength. Because he's completely trustworthy in no man's land. Let's pray. And so, Father, stir within us in this reminder of your greatness, of your majesty, of your power, and then of the sweetness to simply trust you, to see you who you really are, that we not anxiously look about us, but we see a God who is our friend, our Savior, our Redeemer, our helper, our strength. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.